I read what you wrote of your mother's passing last week. I read about the extraordinary love affair she had with your father, meeting on a train on the way to University of Michigan and then getting married on graduation day. Talk about a celebration. I want to read something that you wrote about your mother in your Medium post in tribute to Doris H. Sperling. Her husband's admiration for her commitments to ensuring all children, regardless of income or race, had the same chance to achieve, thrive, and think creatively was overwhelming. She was deeply committed to racial and economic justice, a commitment that grew out of her disgust as a child at seeing the daily degradation of segregation in Florida in the late 1930s and 1940s. She instilled that commitment in her children from the earliest years in what was discussed at the dinner table, shared from her work, and in the multitudes of activities she encouraged. Jean, that sounds a lot like a desire for economic dignity. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. Um, y- you know, a lot of these members of Congress who ran have compelling personal stories uh, about what they overcame. Uh, I'm not one of them. Uh, I was just so blessed. I was not only born to two wonderful parents, uh, uh, an incredible education innovator, uh, a a father who fought for people with disabilities, who won the first case giving girls the constitutional right to play on boys sports team, but they just led by example. And um, what was extraordinary to me about them was why, why they so easily shaped my views the fact they on their own just came to these views. Uh, my father's closest friend in law school was named Roger Wilkins, who was a great civil rights champion, Pulitzer Prize winner, nephew of Roy Wilkins. And when I met him, he said, I will never forget that your father asked me to join a law firm that the two of them would go into partnership together in 1955. And I thought, well, you guys were best friends. He said, you don't understand. No black and white lawyers were forming their own partnership one year after Brown versus Board. He goes, how your father was so, you know, he just was wise and just from the start. And they, um, I remember uh, the story they always told us was uh, the night Martin Luther King was assassinated. They said, what are we going to do as people? And they just said, here's a personal commitment we're going to make. We're never going to let a racist joke or racist comment go by Hmm. unchallenged. And they didn't say our children had to do it. Well, what a lesson for us that, that our parents said that no matter how awkward or uncomfortable or how much you were the skunk at the garden party, if somebody said a racist joke, you had to say something. So that's what we were brought up with. And I dedicate the book to them because I do think that they represent that type of dignity. And it really does go to my book because in a way, you know, somebody like me comes in and you haven't thought through all the different economic philosophies. You don't know the different debates going to come. They change. Oh my God, they change for over the decades in time. But you have a sense of social justice that has energized you to come. And what concerned me as I saw the way economic policy work was that I think all these people on the call, all the people I work with, our heart's always in the right place. But what happens? we start to get focused on certain metrics and we start thinking those metrics are the end goal themselves. They're not the end goal. The end goal for democracy is, is it lifting the well-being of all of us? So even a good metric like unemployment, you can't just say, well, unemployment's low, things are good. You have to ask, is it? Is it, it does it mean people are, do have economic security that they can raise their children with dignity? Or does it just mean they have a terrible job and they're, they're working 90 hours 
a week so that you always had to look at that end goal. And one thing I think the members of Congress know is that when you're governing, you have to prioritize. So you can't just know what's good. You have to have a philosophy of what's best, what's most important. The other thing I saw was that people locked into certain debates. You know, are you for deficit reduction or are you against deficit reduction? Deficit reduction isn't an end goal. It's a means to some broader end. Is it working? What was, it probably was an effective goal in 1993. It's a nonsensical goal today in the middle of this crisis with interest rates low and no proof that, that you shouldn't do everything you can. But those things are easier for us to agree on and not fight on when we are clear on our end goal. And the other thing I saw was that people's pain becomes invisible when you focus just on metrics. You know, Ai-jin mm -hmm. one part she loved in my book was when I talked about the pre-gig workers. It's like, wow, people discovered that there were these people who worked with economic insecurity because UberX and Instacart became things that, to be honest, lots of middle-class people started to use. Well, the day UberX started in 2012, Taxicab drivers didn't have health care. They didn't have unemployment insurance. There were 2 million domestic workers of, what, that, that of which 88% had no health care and 93% had no, so no health security. They were invisible, though, because we counted them in the jobs and we counted their wages, but we didn't really ask, do they have security? Can they stand up to an abusive employer? And so I'm sorry to go on, but I'll just say that where it landed me, it landed me in the notion that it wasn't good enough to just criticize that. And it wasn't good enough to just say our goals should be dignity or throw the word out. I wanted to put a true North Star and I wanted to think about what a complete definition of economic dignity meant. And I realized that you couldn't just do one thing. It had to be three things. It has to be that you have the economic capacity to not only care for your family, but be there for life's precious moments, number one. Two, that's not all we are as people. We have a desire to pursue our potential, our purpose and meaning, and we need first and second chances to do so. So that has to be the second leg. And then the third leg is none of that leads to economic dignity if the price of putting food on the table or pursuing your purpose means you have to work with abuse, domination, and humiliation. So the third leg has to be that you can work with respect, you have protections, you're not abused in your work and life. And if we focus on those three things, it is a way of not letting us just get distracted to the metric or the latest fight between this camp of the policy or the progressive movement, et cetera. It makes us ask all the time, what's our end goal for people? What's the best way to get there? And maybe it makes people change, more willing to change their mind, just like a doctor changes their mind when they get more evidence about a, a better medicine because they know their end goal. It's the patient. And in our case, the end goal is the well-being and happiness and fulfillment of the people that economic policy is supposed to serve.